Whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. Hello and welcome to the I Could Never Do That podcast. I'm Carrie Barrett, and these are the stories of people who have gone into the arena and fought hard to achieve the unthinkable in spite of the fact that, yes, sometimes they are scared and do have some insecurities. Are you ready to go in? It's my hope that after hearing some of these interviews with thought leaders and artists, athletes, musicians, and entrepreneurs, that maybe you too will be able to go from, I could never do that, to, you know what? Maybe I can. I've got a really wonderful episode today with someone who I admire greatly for the work that she's doing to help all of us live healthy and active lives. Shannon O'Grady is the COO and Chief Product Officer at Gnarly Nutrition, which means it is her science and her research that is the brains behind every new product development at this company. Yes, being a female in a male-dominated space is awesome and probably a little difficult, but I was also interested in learning more about her personal journey. And when she was just a teenager, she tells us today that she had to give up her early passion for running because they discovered a genital heart defect. And at the time, they just didn't quite know what to do with it. So it was basically take a pill, stop running. And admirably, and I think that's something that would really devastate a lot of us, but admirably, she took that as an opportunity to essentially pursue her other passion in life, which was science. So you will learn today that Shannon is not only an accomplished athlete, but also she's a science nerd. So she later did come back to endurance sports and became an avid and accomplished cyclist, triathlete, climber, trail runner, all the things, because she and her family live in Utah. So it's almost mandatory in that state. But today, she's also passionate and probably most passionate about jujitsu, where she is a brown belt and could pretty much choke anybody out at this point. You will hear a lot about gnarly nutrition and about how products are developed there and how important it is for all of us to know and understand our body's needs, not just in daily life, but also in training and racing. But really, we talk a lot about her personal journey. And I love her advice and her tips for success in life and in business, which, spoiler alert, you've got to put yourself out there, which I did when I asked her to be a guest on the I Could Never Do That podcast. So please welcome Shannon O'Grady. It is always a treat to chat with you, Shannon O'Grady. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> it's funny how you change tone the second you hit record. You know, I was like, <laughs> I'm just drinking my coffee, drinking my water, going, hey, how's your morning been? And then I hit record. It's like, thanks for joining us today. <laughs> Shannon. Very formal, Shannon yes. O'Grady. Yes, yes, yes. And and this is true. Right before we hit record, we both said, this is going to be a great conversation between two people who actually enjoy each other's company. No one's holding each other to the fire mm -hmm. on facts and science, because really what I want to dissect today is you live a big life and it involves parenthood, it involves marriage, it involves running a company, creating new products through gnarly nutrition, and it involves a, a pretty um, elite level athletic 
career as well. And uh, so I want to unpack all of that and go, oh, how do you do it? How do you do it? So, um, so I think we do it by starting from the beginning and sort of working our way. We'll start backwards. We'll work our way forwards. And I know you very peripherally now, professionally, as somebody who develops products for gnarly nutrition. And I know that you're a, a, a very accomplished athlete, but what was young Shannon like? Uh, I was, I was a tomboy hundred percent. I mean, I, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's hilarious looking back at school pictures because I'm always like that disheveled kid who's <laughs> not, not because my mom didn't want me to look more presentable in my school pictures, but seemed like pictures were always after recess and I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to, you know, not play during recess or not go hard during recess. Um, There's a reason why I don't do video podcasts either. Cause like, I'm still, yeah. I'm still that disheveled little tomboy. So um, am I. Um, yeah. I think that's why we get along so well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I had always just loved being active. My sister, I have two older sisters. They were active. Um, I remember running my, my first race at six, I think, um, my sister cared, there was like some race at my elementary school. It was like mile or mile and a half. Um, and my sister Carrie trained me for it. Um, and I remember like running with her. She, she kind of was the first runner in our house. Um, and we have all these great pictures of it. Um, I, I like hung with the boys and, you know, I, I, I just, I, remember that experience, like training for it and then doing well in the race. And, um, was this a 5k when you were six years old or was no, this like a mile I think it was just or- like a mile or a mile and a half, something like that. But we have these funny pictures of me, like stretching, which I don't do now, <laughs> yeah. um, but <laughs> you know, in this little warm up suit, just, I just remember always being active and my, both my sisters were, uh, you know, my role models for that. And, are you the youngest in that? I line am the youngest. Yep. Okay. Yep. Okay. Um, and they're six and eight years older than me. So um old enough not to not they weren't constantly picking on me and more like, you know, almost motherly. And um, you know, I saw them as mentors and um I ran um cross country indoor and outdoor track uh in high school and really loved it, really loved the team. Cross country was what was really my jam. Um, I loved it and had to stop that a little bit early because I was diagnosed with a heart problem in high school that at the time they didn't really um, have a fix for, which that later changed, but um, took a little break. Valve issue that like a a child or a birth defect, I suppose, which I don't like that word, but it's crazy because I remember having these episodes since I was little um, tachycardic episodes where my heart would, I mean, it looked like an alien was coming out of my chest. You, you could visually see my wow. heart go into this, um, tachycardic rhythm. But, um, I thought that every, I don't know, it sounds so stupid to say it, but I think when you're a little kid, like it was frightening, but I never said anything to anyone about it because I oh kind of just assumed that it might happen to everyone. Um, and then it, started happening more when I was running more competitively and um, my teammates told my coach, my train, our, our train athletic trainer and coach about it. And they were like, 
you can't run anymore actually until you go see a doctor. So they uh, finally diagnosed it using something called an EP study where they put catheters in your body and like uh, try to get your heart to jump into that rhythm to see if it's a blockage somewhere um, or what's going on. And so they diagnosed it as it's called AV reentrant tachycardia, which basically I just had some extra tissue in my AV node, which is like this little chamber between your atrium and ventricle. And every once in a while, the um, electric impulses that help your heart run would get caught up in there. And my pulse would go like upwards of 200, like super fast. Um, That is so scary. It was super scary. Yeah. And at that time they didn't have, they hadn't, didn't really do, um, ablations, which where they burn out a part of your heart on 15 year olds. Um, and the, the consequences if they messed up would be having a pacemaker, um, you know, for the rest of my life. So at that point they were just basically like, take this drug. It should, it should help. Um, you know, and you can't really run anymore. So I had to quit running in high school. I think it was my sophomore, junior, I can't remember. Um, and then later on, luckily, well, I had a very scary attack when I was in my 20s after I had stopped taking the medicine because I didn't like it and had started <laughs> running again because I did like it. Um, I had kind of a scary attack with a friend. We were running in Moab, kind of in this remote area. And it was, you know, it it went into this full-blown asthma attack. She didn't know what was going on. My heart looked like it was going to jump out of its chest. Luckily we were okay. Um, she, she like smartly packed my neck with snow, which helped bring, uh, my heart rate or, you know, change that rhythm in my heart, um, and return it to a normal pulse. And, uh, I went back to the doctor after <laughs> that and they, um, they're like, okay, it's time that, for an ablation now. Yeah. Like, and at that point it was, it was like a, um, same day procedure and not a big deal. And they did it and I haven't had a problem since. So that was, um, I'm 45 now. So that was, you know, 25 years ago. So that's great. But I mean, so that kind of paused my running, um, you know, from high school to college, but I got back into kind of longer distance, like marathon running in, in college and then, um, started getting more into ultras as I went into graduate school. Um, there was a, a a moment where I went into triathlon, really loved that. Did a bunch of half Ironman, which was my favorite distance. Did Ironman Canada um, and loved kind of the community um, and loved, uh, you know, all the different training. It felt good. Like I'd never been a very good swimmer, um, but I oh, started swimming. Raise your hand. Yeah, Woo! right. <laughs> yeah, I know yeah. it's so technical and so hard. And um, I just never really thought that I'd be able to swim you know, a mile or two miles, um, in open water, a little mm-hmm. bit of fear and a lot of inexperience, but I started swimming with a master's team and, um, great community there got a lot better, became kind of a eh, respectable middle of the packer on the swim enough to hang, you know, and um, yeah, overcame yeah. some fears of, of crowded open water swimming and, then, you know, as life got busier, it was easier to focus on one. So I kind of switched between ultra running races and some more kind of endurance mountain biking races. And, 
And there um, were some that, children in here at this point. That, yeah, not, yeah, not quite yet. I mean, like that was graduate school when I kind of switched to that stuff and or started with the triathlon. And I think that's when I'd always been interested in nutrition. I think anyone that's done longer races realizes how critical, you know, nailing down your nutrition is. So at that point I was in graduate school, was uh, pursuing my thesis was on nutritional physiology, but more kind of in an ecological setting. Um, so looking at physiological and morphological adaptations to um, an herbivorous or a plant diet in animals um, and loved kind of that research track, but at the same time was also falling in love with sports nutrition and endurance athletics. Um, so those two things were occurring simultaneous and somewhere in there, I met my husband um, <laughs> blah, and, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's a climber. That's, that's what he does. And we live in Utah and we're lucky enough, you know, the mountains both brought us to Utah. Um, I came out here for school as well, but um, you know, coming from the East coast, I was blown away by the size of the mountains in Utah, but also how close they are to the city um, and, and what kind of access that gives you, you know, it, it takes what a lot of people enjoy for vacations and makes it something that you can really do daily. Um, and that lifestyle I quickly fell in love with and, and really that love for that lifestyle and that accessibility to outdoor recreation is what changed the trajectory of my life. Right. Mm. I decided I didn't want to go into tenure track position just to move anywhere a position opened um, that I wanted to stay in Utah and kind of keep up the lifestyle that I, you know, learned to love so much. Yeah. So a couple of questions. You grew up on the East Coast. Where at on the East Coast? In Northern Virginia, right outside Washington, D.C. Okay. That's where my husband grew up. He spent many, many oh, no years way. there. Yeah. Yeah. He's a little, I mean, he's like, 15 years old. Well, wait, how old is my husband? 57, 58, something like that. So you probably didn't cross paths unless, you know, and uh, unless your dads were both military folks, mm. but, um, but yeah, he, I love that part of the country. It really is beautiful and it's a different, beautiful. It's just, it's rolling so hills, yep. and so many beautiful trees. And then you get to the mountains and the thing that I'm always amazed with those mountain towns it, is just how much uh, recreation happens in the winter that doesn't happen in other towns. Cause I grew up in Ohio, which we get winter, but like, it's where you just don't go outside for six yeah. months, or yeah. if you do, you're hating life and you hibernate like a bear. And so there's not a lot of outdoor recreation where you get to these mountain towns and you feel guilty if you're not outside snowshoeing or downhill skiing or Nordic skiing or whatever the case whatever the case may be. So were you always, so growing up in Virginia, this, this odd thing that happened when you were a runner, it doesn't feel to, it doesn't appear to have really affected you that emotionally kind of long-term because you've obviously come back to sport and have fixed the issue, but were you always a science person? Yeah, I was. Um, <laughs> funny. It's funny that you bring that up. Yeah, I remember. I mean, I'd always I always liked school. And I think it was when I was in seventh grade. Um, we, were, we were doing this stupid unit. It was like a computer based unit 
voyage of the Mimi or something. And it was supposed to, I mean, it wasn't the, the theoretically, it wasn't stupid. Like we were saying, it was supposed to help us learn about evolution. I don't remember exactly, like maybe it had something to do with Galapagos Island. Um, but I hated it because I just, I didn't enjoy the time on the computer. And my science teacher, I say it's Mr. Gardner. I don't even remember his, his name, but he was basically, he was trying to get kids in class to do the science fair. And he, oh God, that gives me the chills. And he was like, if you do the science fair, you don't have to do Voyage of the Mimi. And I was like, done, done. I'm going to do the science fair. So I did my project on um, basically the need of preservatives in bread. And I, I mean, it's funny that you say, and now I'm like, well, I had nutrition early on. And so I like took preservative free bread and then like your ultra processed, like wonder bread um, and, and put that, put those two, um, types of bread in all these different conditions and then monitored mold growth to see how fast mold grew on one versus the other. And then I was hooked and I did science fair every year after that. And like, you know, did well, went to regionals, you know, and, um, I just really liked the idea that I could, learn a lot by pursuing something that totally interested me. Um, and also the approach to um, testing, you know, a hypothesis uh, related to that interest um, and how, you know, you can never prove a hypothesis. You can only disprove it, but how you would go about trying to get closer to that answer. I think I, I just really loved the idea of that. So you know, I didn't know whether or not I wanted to maybe go into medicine or go into um, science, but I had some pretty amazing research-based teachers at university, um, and and that kind of drove me more towards that path, um, which I, I think is a better fit for me anyways. I can be a little squeamish around blood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and so, and so, you know, fast forward now back to academia and research in Utah for your PhD. It's, it's in nutritional psychology. Is that correct? Physiology. Phys nutritional physiology. physiology. Yeah. Okay. So essentially what in our, what, um, in our physiological kind of systems, like digestion, metabolism, all of those things. So morphology is more like the structure of something and physiology is more like the function of something. So how the functioning of um, our bodies helps us, you know, in kind of a nutritional, well, nutritional space. I'm not explaining it very well, but like, um, how that physiology might affect our nutrition and how that nutrition might affect our physiology. So it goes both ways. So my thesis was looking at, um, how different morphologies and different, um, uh, physiological processes allow animals to consume plant matter, um, and kind of the strategies around surviving on a plant-based diet. Okay. All right. Well, I've, I've been doing it for 15 or 16 years, but, <laughs> but I'm also not an ape. Um, well, some would say we are, but <laughs> like, and perhaps we are. Yeah. I mean, I think closer to them than many know. <laughs> yes, 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 absolutely. Um, so you decided there was, it sounded like at some point there was like this fork in the road of pursuing academia and going, as you said earlier, like wherever there was, were positions available versus 
a more practical application of your PhD and of this work and of the research. And so did you know, or, or let me back up and say, like, what, what opportunities were there in the field um, besides academia? Yeah. I mean, I, like I said, in graduate school, I got really into triathlon and started kind of dabbling in bike racing, dabbling in um, longer distance running and, um, you know, work, did some coaching, a little bit of coaching for friends, um, would always like make my own bars and got really into the nutritional aspect of it. Um, partially because I had some major nutritional mishaps, which I think we, we all, you know, we all have from time to time. I remember I did the wild, wildflower half, or it's not a half Ironman, but it's like close. It's weird distances. Oh, and, yes. um, oh yes. That, that yeah. I loved like that, that so, race. Yeah. But the first time I did it, I was, I had, I was like, okay, I'm going to take a goo, like every 20 to 30 minutes. Oh, during this wow. race. Yeah. 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 I spent so much time in the porta potty for <laughs> that. Like it was insane. And so I think through mishaps, my own um, errors that uh, I saw friends making, like I just got a lot more interested um, in where nutrition can either make or break, <laughs> you know, your <laughs> athletic endeavors. Um, you know, that led me to looking at the science it was about the time, like I had finished my PhD, I had done a couple postdocs, um, one looking at the impact of, of nutrition on epigenetic factors in developing fetuses, one um, looking at you um, kind of mapping water dynamics in the body um, using stable isotopes. So all kind of relating back to this, how our body processes nutrients, um, but uh, different kind of takes on that that theme, and I loved that research part of it. I loved being a postdoc, um, but it got to a point where I had to make a just you know you can't be a postdoc forever for many reasons, um, <laughs> and so I had to decide like whether I was going to go this academic route, pursue a tenure track position, get into grant cycles, um, or kind of look at another option and. I was, my, my dream was to work for a sports nutrition company, um, in product development and, uh, Utah is, is, has a pretty big supplement, uh, industry. Really? Um, is it, be- is, is there, is it because there's like a lot of, um, labs there that where they're doing a lot of testing and research or because of so, the Olympics gets a little, I mean, I think, um, you know, I'll, I'll try to try to answer that. I don't know the exact reason, but um, so obviously the LDS culture is pretty big in Utah mm-hmm. and um, there's a lot of, you know, history of using more naturopathic remedies in that culture. So that's part of it. Um, Orrin Hatch also, who was a senator, I think, <laughs> yeah, for, for Utah for a long time. He helped write um, Deshay, which is the Dietary Supplement and Health Something Act, um, which basically um, puts regulations on supplement manufacturers. Um, and part of the reason he was, you know, a big part of that was because of the importance in industry in Utah um, and that 
you know, I think Utah has policies that help support that industry, but I think it those two things. It all goes back to the church. It yeah, all goes it does. Back and I'm not LDS at all, but <laughs> I, I do think that that, you know, plays a part in the reason why the supplement industry is big in Utah. So there were, because of that, there were um, some job opportunities. And I'll say, you know, that the first couple jobs I had were not my ideal <laughs> job, but it's interesting how that happens in life. Like, it, it was an opportunity. I was interested in it. I was curious. I wanted to learn more. And the skills that I learned along the way, whether it was, um, you know, label regulations and, and organic certification um, at one job to uh, helping bring a manufact- manufacturer into FDA compliance and helping them achieve NSF certification in another job, right? Those two things play a big part in what I do for Gnarly now, which includes, you know, product formulation, includes, um, you know, managing our manufacturers and our co-packers, includes like, you know, helping us get NSF certified for all of our products. Like it, I think often, rarely are our paths straight and often they're winding to get where we want to be, but it's all those turns and curves they can you know, be helpful in the end and and really land you, you know, at your end point or your end goal. Well, in the process, you might not realize those are stepping stones that are important. So this gnarly, gnarly nutrition existed before you started working for them. Correct? Yeah, I, I want to say they've been around for about a year and a half. And um, I was introduced to gnarly because a friend of mine who is a pro skier um, got sponsored by gnarly. And I was like, gnarly nutrition, like what a weird name, what is this company? And so I looked up the products and, um, there were a lot of things that they were doing that were in line with my own, uh, you know, compass for creating products. And, um, they were in Utah and I was already in the space of like, I had written letters to Cliff Bar and I had written letters, you know, I was <laughs> like, you, you gotta put yourself out there, right? If you have, a big dream or somewhere you want to get. Um, and I learned this through my time in academia, right? Like I grew a thick skin. I wrote a lot of uh, uh, research papers. You try to submit those to journals. <laughs> a lot of other scientists are not very nice with their feedback. Um, some are, some are not. You get grants rejected. You get papers rejected. You have to rewrite things. You, you know, it, I grew a thick skin. And so that's kind of, that was my approach to trying to get where I wanted to go in kind of the corporate space is like, okay, well, I'm never going to get anywhere unless I put myself out there. So I would, you know, I apply for any job I saw that seemed like it would be a good fit. Um, And, you know, with Gnarly, they weren't hiring. So I just wrote them a letter and sent them my resume and was like, hey, this is what I think I can do for you. And you know, that turned into a a position as a contractor. And that turned then into kind of a position as head of product. And, you know, and here I am now. And here you are now. And you've been with them for about 10 years now? Mm, Seven, seven years this year. Seven years. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And they've been in existence for almost 10 at this point, like eight, like eight or nine, eight, eight, nine years. So it's a young, it's a young company and in the scheme of things. (laughs) Yep. 
For sure. Uh, definitely. And early on, you know, I mean, we're still really small. People often think that we're bigger than we are. We're only five employees currently. Um, so teeny tiny, um, trying to grow, trying our hardest to grow, um, trying to get into more retail locations. And I think, um, you know, I've had to focus a lot more on the business aspect, which is not my forte by any means in the last few years. Um, but I still get to do a lot of the science and education pieces that I like. Um, you know, it's just somewhere along the way. I'm like, well, an MBA might have been useful. <laughs> <laughs> right. And who would have who would have known? But I feel like we're in this space and time now where nutrition and supplements and um, knowing our bodies and knowing our needs is having a moment. Are you feeling that as well from your standpoint? I am. Yeah, I definitely am. I think um, also like mentally knowing where we stand and being okay and giving each other space for what we're processing is another thing that I see um, being addressed kind of more openly among larger groups of people, which I think is really healthy. Um, accepting bodies of all shapes and sizes also feels like a a positive step that um, folks are making. Sadly, I still think we get into this bad diet space um, or this like, take this one pill to solve all your problems space like that. I don't know if that will ever go away. I'm hoping that the, you know, um, positive self-love and acceptance of, of, you know, athletes of all sizes and shapes um, takes over. But uh, I don't know. I think, well, you know, but I've heard you say, and I feel like this is, this seems so vital to your role in, at a supplement company, you know, where, and I've, I have heard you say like, that's, it's a, you're in a space where people feel like, Oh, snake and oil. Like, what are they trying to sell me? And you've been very upfront with, Hey, look, if you can get all of your needs, you know, we are a supplement company, but like, if you can get all your needs in whole foods, by all means eat the food, you know? And, yeah, yeah. but there are times, um, where most of us cannot meet the needs that coincide with our training. And I'm talking about ath the athletic side. Mm -hmm. Um, so for those of us that are training 10, 15, 20 hours a week, like sometimes the food's just not going to cut it. And, that's your role, right? As far as educating, like, okay, here's, here are some things you should consider. Yeah. I think, I mean, and that's the part that I like, right. It's like every little person is my seventh grade science project <laughs> where, <laughs> where I'm like, okay, you know, what are your goals? What are the hurdles? I've got what mold, by now? the way, I've got plenty of mold on this body. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like I, mean, I am I wonder bread. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I think all of us, you know, it feels good to help people. And when I can connect with someone and help them through, you know, feeling better at their training or helping them dial in their race nutrition so they actually finish a race or, you know, helping them achieve some kind of like body comp composition goal. Like I love doing that kind of stuff. And um, in doing that, you know, that's that's what you learn is like sometimes sometimes it's like an acute hurdle, like. I'm training 15 to 20 hours a week and I just don't have enough time 
to cook all the things I need to cook to meet all of my nutritional needs. And that's potentially where a supplement can be helpful. And sometimes it's more of like, what stage of life are we in? Where like, you and I are aging athletes, and we want to stay active as long as possible. And movement is key to to having a good health span and, and growing, you know, old the way we want to. Um, And that really can require us to increase our protein intake so that we maintain muscle mass and potentially put on muscle mass if we're also doing resistance training. Um, And in a space like that, you know, sometimes it's hard to get that much protein in through whole foods. Maybe you have the time, you just don't have the appetite and that, and, you know, supplements can be helpful with that. So it's, there's definitely like more power to people that can do it without supplements but this idea that supplements are a dirty word and and um not all supplement companies are the best but there are good ones out there and i think um if you find one that aligns with your values in terms of how they formulate their products in terms of the transparency um of the labels and of the formulations in terms of the quality testing, and even just in terms of the taste of the product and how it works for you, they can really help us kind of go towards the direction of our athletic goals and, and, you know, make it more fun on the way. Yeah. And part of your job is to ensure that you are meeting these credentials of being NFS certified and, and really working through with the manufacturers, knowing that you're getting these top line ingredients in all of your products, which has to be a really hard job, especially in this day and age with, you know, with COVID that could not have been easy to be working with manufacturers wherever you work with them? Like, was that a huge challenge to overcome? Um, Yeah. I mean, I think um, COVID had, whether you're a business or an individual, like the pressure and strain of how that affected, you know, everyone's lives, like still echoes today. Um, I think our manufacturer, uh, I have close working relationship with. They're 15 minutes from my office. I've worked with them in a previous job. Um, and so there's a lot of trust there. They are NSF certified, have been since they opened up. Um, so that was less of a concern for me in terms of how how they were going to run their business and, and how that could impact ours. I think what a lot of um, business owners went through in terms of retail being shut down um, and how to keep folks engaged that were, you know, experiencing major changes in their life. That was the hurdle that Gnarly really had to to try to overcome. And I think even today, you know, we're still seeing the impacts of COVID on retailers and and whether or not they're willing to take chances on brands they haven't heard of, Um, you know, the impact of like, increasing inventory, uh, you know, in the past couple of years due to due to inflation and how that's affected buying, buying um, of retail accounts, like, we're still, (laughs) we're still battling that. Um, So, you know, you know, we all have challenges, and we just got to try to work together to surmount them, I guess. Yeah. And I, I just have this image of of you going into the lab. And going to your manufacturer and, you know, putting on your lab coat and putting on your goggles and all this stuff. And just like, just this like mad scientist, this like O'Grady mad scientist, like formulating different 
products and doing tasting of the, you know, your protein powders or whatever the product happens to be, how much of that happens, you know, probably not exactly like that, but how, what, what sort of, like, I know that you have to go through rigorous, rigorous, like scientific tests for all of the ingredients, but like what, what, what protocols go through for like, yeah, this tastes like crap. I'm not putting this out there versus, Hey, I think we've got something here that actually tastes good. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it starts kind of more less in the lab and more going through the research that's already out there. So in, you know, if you look at Gnarly's product line, you're not going to find anything like crazy earth shattering ingredient with insane claims attached to it because (laughs) we really use the science to inform us of what's going to be effective and then have to determine whether or not we can include it in an effective dosage in our product, either because the dose is insane that they used in the study or because the ingredient costs too much and it wouldn't be something that people could afford, or maybe the ingredient tastes like crap and there's no way we're going to (laughs) make it palatable. You know, so it starts there like, okay, what would this recipe look like, you know, for product X? Um, and then, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know if I don the lab coat so much, but, you know, I have a scale and I'll get ingredients, either ask our manufacturer if they currently carry ingredients or con- contact ingredient vendors um, for ingredients that I'm thinking of, get samples, mix stuff together. And, I'll, and usually what I'll do is just borrow one of the flavors from our manufacturer that we already use in our product. So I'm not thinking about flavoring um, early on. I'm just thinking about the the formulation or the recipe itself. Um, our, the product that I kind of last spent a lot of time delving into um, was our Fuel 2O. Um, worked with some of our ultra endurance athletes, sent them samples, had them test it. At that point, I was looking at both different ratios of the carbohydrates we would use in that product, as well as different forms of those carbohydrates. So having them test, give me feedback, what they thought, how it sat on their stomach, how they felt after, you know, collecting that feedback. And then once I have a formulation that I, I like, then looking at, okay, what kind of flavoring would make sense? Are we looking at multiple flavors? You know, in the case of something that's going to be an endurance nutrition product, flavor fatigue is real. We want Mm. it to be palatable. We want it to be light. We want it to be something that um, people really enjoy drinking. Uh, And so looking at what kind of flavor profiles might work with a product like that. um, And, you know, and then just testing a bunch of different things and getting feedback from our athletes, feedback from our internal team. Um, yeah. And then, then taking off with it. Do you feel like these mistakes that a lot of us make in our endurance events where we do end up in the porta potty or vomiting on the side of the road, uh, as it were, but is it is some of it because we just we don't know what we need from a numbers perspective, you know, for an all day Ironman, like some of us just might not know what we need to meet our demands. And so we either, most of the time we, we overcompensate and start shoveling in food. Like you said earlier with like, I'm going to take a gel every 20 minutes. Um, Or is it, so it's not knowing really what we need versus really not understanding what's in the products that we're trying 
Yeah. So I, I think it be, it can be a combination of things. I think the underlying kind of reason that I see most often is it's regardless of what you're trying, not practicing it ahead of time. Right. Had I, had I taken a gel every 20 minutes when I was doing like six to eight hour training days, like I would have quickly known that my GI tract was not happy with that much sugar in my system. Um, you know, so there are a lot of things that can change, change, excuse me, on race day, like our excitement, our nervousness that can impact, you know, our desire to, to eat or drink, which can affect, you know, how consistent we are with it. So we never really want to get in a hydration hole or a fueling hole, because that's when, you know, we see people overcompensate. And usually that overcompensation can lead to problems. Um, you also our intensity, we get excited, maybe we're higher up than we thought we were. So we start going faster at a higher intensity than really we were training at. And that can also impact, you know, where we are with our energy needs, what fuel we're using to supply that energy. And when I say fuel, I mean more endogenous or onboard fuel. So like the higher you higher intensity you're you're racing at, the more glycogen dependent you are, and maybe the less that you're using as this baseline fuel. And so, you know, our glycogen runs out, our fat does not. And so then maybe because you're racing at a higher intensity, you need more carbs than you were used to needing during your training run. So I think there, there, in, when we talk about practice, we're talking about the types and quantities of food you consume, but really we also, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to mimic or, um, or replicate like the nerves we feel, but we should really pay attention to that intensity, the heart rate we're trying to stay at, because that can impact our fuel choices and the quantity of fuel we need. So I always preach, you know, practice, 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 nothing new on race day, um, but it goes beyond just the choices you're making um, and also goes into kind of your racing strategy and, and how much you're sticking with that race plan. Oh, wow. I just felt like, I just felt like you held up a mirror to my career as an athlete. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's uh, hard. We all, I've so. fallen into that, you know, that whole many a times I've seen so many friends do it. I, when I did Ironman Canada, I uh, remember there, I had this friend that would do like, I don't know, like four or five Ironman a year. He was just a training and racing fiend, mm. but I always used to joke with him because it's like, do I have to hit you with you know, a four by four, take you to the head to get you to actually like pay attention to your nutrition and be consistent. And Ironman Canada, like he, he got super behind on, uh, electrolyte consumption. And I don't remember, like he was cramping and da, da, da. So he decided to take one of those like concentrated electrolyte drop things. Oh, and oh. he just shot it. Oh no. He was oh, like puking on the side of the road for, you know, he was in the med tent at the end. Like it, it was so bad. And I feel like he had so many races like that because he just would not spend the time that, that he, you know, he would spend time getting so <laughs> granular over his training schedule and training plan and his workouts but yeah, he was doing the hours. That, yeah, he wouldn't spend that same amount of energy on his nutrition to support all of that. And reality, like he was capable of like a, you know, 10 hour Ironman 
but very rarely did we see that level of performance from him because he never spent the energy figuring out his nutrition. It's so frustrating. It's, it's so frustrating to see it as a coach. It's so frustrating to experience it as an athlete. And I, I don't know what that fear is for so many of us during training to not consume the calories that we need, because for some reason, I think it's still implanted in our brain that exercise and training is a diet plan. And I know mm -hmm. I fall into that trap very much. So where it's like, Oh, you know, I, I just have to get through this 15 mile run today. I can do that on one gel, but in a race, I would never do a 15 mile, you know, or 30 K race on one gel, but on a training run, I might, and I don't know what that is. Like, whether it's just like, uh, I don't want to waste the gel. I don't want to, I, 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 it's, it's a lot to unpack. And, and I think we all carry our pasts with us when it comes to food and our baggage. And, and I think we'd all be better off if we just somehow kind of came to terms with like, this is what we need, um, in our bodies and not to harp on just in race nutrition, because really the bulk of what gnarly does and what you do, it's, there is some in race nutrition, but really what your strengths are on these other needs that support our training. So protein powders, uh, creatine, BCAAs. I mean, you've got there like a huge swath of products that support all of our endeavors as active performance-minded people. And so much so that recently I know it, it can be confusing. Like, like there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And I know you hear that a lot. It's like, oh my God, what do I take? Because if I uh, do, do I take this before this, this after this? And if I screw this, like what's going to happen? And I know that your ethos is like trying to keep it simple to the point where just recently gnarly on your website, you really enacted a quiz that just said, not sure where to start, take this quiz and find out. And you've created like sample boxes to help people determine what they might need. So can you talk a little bit about what went into, you know, that marketing decision? Sure. Yeah. Um, I think it started with the customer or the, the customer questions we were getting regularly, which are like, I am a, you know, 38 year old triathlon triathlete with kids. And I'm, you know, these are my goals for the year. What should I take? Or, mm -hmm. I'm on your website and I'm overwhelmed. I don't know where to start. We were getting that a lot. And so, you know, as a first step, we, we redid our packaging a couple years ago, trying to minimize plastic in the gnarly line. Um, we moved to tin plated steel containers, which are recycled at a rate of 70% versus um, plastics, 8%. So really trying to, to move, you know, gnarly, down that path of, of, of being a more sustainable brand. And at that time, we also decided to create these um, use icons that would divide our products up into, you know, pre-workout, in-workout, post-workout, and then every day. And then by dividing that up, informing people how they should be used. But we are still getting the, this is my athletic goal, what products would help me accomplish it. And so um, we thought, well, you know, it's not going to be perfect for everybody because it's hard to get 
a real read on where someone is both nutritionally, athletically, um, from a quiz, but at least we can start pointing them in the right direction. And so um, by creating this quiz with questions about like athletic goals, um, interests, amount of training per day, um, it helps us determine like where you are and what products you might benefit from. And then we include in the, the sample box itself, a card talking about why the products are included in a sample box and how you would use them. Um, so it kind of gives people a little bit of a kickstart and definitely not like, say you get the endurance sample box as an endurance athlete doesn't mean that you have to, or you want to use all of that products in the sample box, but it gives you an idea of what could be beneficial. And then you can try them out and see what works for you. Yeah. Which is great because yeah, when you order the sample box, they don't show up in like these gigantic barrels of stuff. I mean, they're, they're smaller trial size packets, if you will, so that you yep. can decide whether or not this works with me, or I don't like the taste of this. And, um, yeah, I, I had the one that has the, um, I'm, I'm not sure what, what box it is actually is probably more the endurance. Um, but like, it's, it had the vegan protein powder. You could choose non-vegan, but I chose the vegan protein powder. Um, it has creatine. It had, um, the greens, uh, the green drink and, um, maybe some, I might be getting it wrong. Did it have BC? It might've had the fuel to fuel two It was the hydration. Yeah. yeah. It was the hydration packet. Yeah. And so it was great to just go, Oh, this is a good, you know, smattering of products, if you will. Yep. And I'm going to take what what works for me or what I think that I can implement either into my training or my daily life, because now it makes sense. Like now I know that I want to take my creatine post-workout because it very clearly, well, I'm probably getting it wrong. No, I know I'm not, but like, no, you, it very clearly is a great supplement for all athletes, but here's when you should take it. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, one helps that creatine is a special case. And we were talking yeah. about it earlier where people have these like misconceptions about who could benefit from it or what those benefits are. And I think that's, that's a big part of what gnarly's goal is in this space is simply to educate and then let people make decisions for themselves. Um, and, and that's my, the part of my job beyond working with individuals and athletes one-on-one, -on -one, um, Part of my job I really like is doing that education piece um, where I'm talking about sports nutrition, where I'm talking about kind of the physiology with how our body processes different nutrients. Um, so people can really understand like, okay, you know, why is creatine in the gnarly line? And as an endurance athlete, why is gnarly recommending creatine for me? Because I thought it was for bodybuilders. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. You know, I love doing that type of stuff. And um, really, that's one of the things that gnarly tries to do is, is educate around the science that supports the products we have in our line. Yeah. And if there are any coaches, because I do have a lot of coaches that, that listen. And so if there are coaches that are interested in having Shannon talk to your teams or your groups, by all means, reach out because I've yeah. been able to connect you with a couple of different people. And you're always, you always make yourself available to talk to people. I do want to round the corner back to you. Um, and I don't want to, well, yeah, I'll just ask it like, what's it like being a woman in kind of a male dominated space? Like you don't, you don't seem to like, it. it's like an, 
to me, your personality feels like, yeah, 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 whatever, not a big deal. But I feel like it is a big deal. Yeah. I mean, I, um, it's a, it's a good question. I think it's interesting when I feel it the most is when, when we go to, to, uh, hire for a particular job and, um, we get all of the resumes in, you know, looking at the number of male applicants versus the number of female applicants, or when we get to the interview process, you know, of the pool that was selected, the number of male versus number of female, I think, and that could also be said, you know, I am a white woman who grew up middle class, you know, so there's a certain amount of privilege that goes with that. I live in Utah, which is a, <laughs> a pretty white state. I also feel that that same way about inclusion of, of, of different um, cultures and races. Um, so I experience it as a female, but I'm also aware of it, um, as, as a white individual in a state where, uh, you know, predominantly, you know, white folks live here. Um, but I grew up in, in Northern Virginia outside of Washington, DC, that was much more culturally diverse. Um, so I also, you know, feel the need for that in the space. Um, and, you know, we, we gnarly tries to attract both in terms of the values we um, stand behind as far as DEI and um, the, the, you know, athletes we sponsor, you know, our, our team is more than 50% female. Um, mm-hmm. And we, we try to, to, um, to support and, and be in, and partner with athletes of all sexual orientation, of all cultures, of all genders, because, you know, that's, who, what we are and, and who we believe in and, and what we want to stand for as a company. Um, so whether it's internal or external, all we can do is, is try to attract more people that believe in the same values. Um, and, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say I personally have had too many um, experiences, you know, that where gender equity is an issue. I've been lucky in that space. Um, I think the gnarly CEO, Eli Kerr, is pretty amazing about supporting um, females and supporting um, individuals of all, you know, uh, backgrounds. Um, So I've been lucky in that way. But, you know, I think we've all had to deal with our BS along (laughs) along the paths of our lives. Um, Yeah, yeah. And I would just hate to see people um, diminish your role because, you know, you're the female and it's like, uh, and I don't know if that happens or not as somebody who creates the <laughs> products for climbing and hiking and mountain biking and, you know, any athletic endeavor, it, do you get flack ever? I don't, I, I don't actually, Good. I mean, I'm a pretty, I don't know. I, I a lot of people know I'm a brown belt in jujitsu and I could yes. check them out. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I'm not aggressive, but I'm a pretty confident person. Um, and I, um, but at the same time, I don't see myself as like, I try not to stand on a soapbox. I try to be open to, um, views other than mine. If they're well supported by scientific Mm -hmm. research, like I'm open to discussions. Um, so I definitely, um, I think have a firm stance in what I believe in, but I'm not so closed down 
um, that I won't entertain other people's viewpoints if they're willing to have a reasonable discussion. And, and maybe because of that, like I don't get a lot of flack or maybe it's just because I'm giving off the vibes that I could, you know, choke people out and break yeah. their limbs. I, I'm not sure. no. And, and you can, and like, that's sort of where I want to like round it up is that you did spend many, many years as an endurance athlete, triathlete, ultra runner. Um, I know that you have done like bike racing and mountain bike racing, and yet somehow you discovered jujitsu and that has been your passion and almost your side hustle for what the last several years. Um, it's been seven years now, seven years. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it's close to the time I've been with gnarly. Cause I actually, um, when, when I was pregnant with my son, who's now he's turning eight this year, um, at, in a previous job I had had, I, my boss was a black belt, not in jujitsu, but in another martial art. And he was always talking to me like, Hey, have, you know, do you know what jujitsu is? Like, you should look at it. Like it's a great martial art and self-defense, um, uh, you know, a study for people for women in particular, but also for folks that are just smaller, um, because it doesn't rely on strength, you know, smaller, uh, opponents can take on bigger opponents because there's, uh, leverage and angles become a lot of what, uh, leads to submissions. And therefore like, it's not only uh, a question of size or strength in terms of who's more dominant. And so he kind of planted the seed. I was pregnant, you know, plotting my return to sport, you know, um, and then I started working at Gnarly and we used to do kind of regular team building activities. And we, our office was just down the street of one of the biggest gyms, um, jujitsu gyms in Utah. And we did a team building activity there. And I was training for a, a 50 miler at the time. And I was like, man, as soon as I'm done with this race, like <laughs> I'm going to give this a go. Like I'm really interested in this. And it was pretty much um, just like, love it first say. I mean, I still run, I still climb like my, you know, my climbing is my husband's main passion and I enjoy it as well. My kids do it. That'll always be something that we do. But in terms of like where my passion and focus is like jujitsu takes the cake. It's, it's like chess, but with your, with your body. Um, my husband has started training now too. He's like, it's a lot like climbing except where, you know, when you're climbing, the rock doesn't react to what you're doing, but it's similar in terms of like some of the strength, some of the body tension and the problem solving. Um, a lot of climbing is problem solving, figuring out how your body can, you know, do a particular route given the size of the holds, the placement of the holds. And, and jujitsu is a lot of problem solving as well. But what's interesting is that every opponent presents a different problem and often you have to adapt your game to what they're doing. Um, and I, you know, I think part of that confidence that might leak over into my, uh, you know, career comes from the humbling yet empowering experience of training jujitsu, you know, as a middle-aged, you know, relatively small female, you know, but taking on people that are younger than I am, people that are bigger than I am, you know, males as well as females, um, and growing in that sport and, um, 
you know, getting my ass kicked pretty regularly, but also like being surprised at, you know, some things that um, I've accomplished. And I just love it. And I think because it's such an intense sport and because you go through so many ups and downs within that community, like it also becomes a very tight knit community. And um, my gym is amazing, accepting, like open-minded um, and really supportive. And it's, it's just been a really great place to train over these last, last seven years. The passion just oozed from you. Like, I'm just <laughs> like, I'm just like, well, I should try that as a, as a petite person who might need a break from endurance sports and, and really is at the stage of her life too, where you need to incorporate strength and just feeling strong in body and mind. And it sounds like you have found your, your secret weapon. Final question. And you kind of just answered it really, which is like, what are your biggest like secrets of success in sport and business? And you alluded to a little bit earlier by saying being humbled, but like, what are some other secrets of, uh, not secrets because nothing's secret anymore, but like, yeah, your tips for your success and where you got to where you are. Yeah. Um, have you ever read the book, the war of art by Stephen Pressfield? Yes. Yeah. So one, everybody should read that book. Mm-hmm. It's written more for creatives, but I think it applies so much to sport as well. And I think the biggest lesson that I learned from that book, and at the time I was putting it in the context of, of jujitsu and competing in jujitsu. Um, but I think it has applies to so many other um, parts of life as well, is that um, you really need to lean into your fears and one, try to figure out where that fear is coming from and go in the direction of it as opposed to shying away from it. So whether that's a fear of rejection, whether that's a fear of embarrassment, like what what does that say about where you are and what your own potential issues with, you know, not measuring up or um, failing, you know, what does that say about uh, your own ability to kind of handle that and move forward in a positive way and accomplish things you might never really thought you were capable of, as opposed to just avoiding the situation altogether. So I think that's been my biggest thing is, um, you know, taking time to dissect where my own fears come from. And then um, moving in the direction of that in order to progress as opposed to taking steps back and avoiding um, those probably growth situations altogether. In jujitsu, they always say like, you either win or or you learn, like there's no losing, right? Um, And I think that, you know, some people like tongue in cheek with that, but I think it's so true. Like there, you don't, as long as you step on those mats with like a pure heart, you're there for the right reasons and you respect the person that you're, you know, fighting, going against. um, And, and, you know, that respect comes through in the way that you have the match. Like you should be proud no matter what, because it took, took a lot to step onto that mat, um, you know, and test yourself. And, um, 
you'll never know what you're truly capable of unless you do test yourself. So write that down. You'll never know what you're truly capable of unless you test yourself. Thanks again, Shannon and Gnarly Nutrition, where you use science and research to inform all of your product decisions. Visit their site at gonarly.com and take the quiz to determine your nutrition needs. And thank you for supporting this independent podcast. You can drop a donation via Buy Me a Coffee, and that link is in the show notes. We will see you next time right here on the I Could Never Do That podcast. Thanks for listening.